0: Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would uh, give us soft hearts and understanding minds, especially as we look at hard words this morning. Amen. Amen. Who is God? What is he like? It is the most fundamental question at the heart of the universe, and it's a question that you and I need a solid answer to. Uh, We need a solid, unshakable answer to what is God like for two reasons, really. Firstly, life can be confusing and difficult. And when life gets hard and it feels dark and I can't understand what's going on, I get to doubting the things I thought I knew about God. Is he really loving? Does he really know what he's doing? Has he really got my best interests at heart? And so when when life is dark, I need a really solid, unshakably certain answer to what God is like if I'm going to hang on to my faith secondly the bible is quite a big book This is quite a small slim one but it's a it's a big book with lots of pages it says lots of stuff and there are there are confusing passages in it where it seems like god orders genocide or or he seems to change his mind or repent or regret things he's done and and at times like that you and i need absolute certainty about what god is like so that we know how to understand and interpret the things that that don't really make sense to us in the bible we also need to know how to read the Bible, but that's uh, that's for next year's KG weekend. Um, and all of that brings us to the cross. I'm just going to I just need to stick something under my notes so I can actually read them. Uh, there was a there was a minister who came to do a load of training from Australia. He's spoken at CCM a few times, um, but because I'm going to say something mildly rude about him, for, I won't uh, I won't say who it is. Uh, and I remember he was giving us um, apprentices a um, advice on how to have pastoral conversations. And I remember him saying, when you speak to a woman, always make sure you stand with your back to the wall. Because they often cry, and that way no one else can see. <laughs> I was just, okay. Um, and I just thought, oh, what do you and, But he then said one of the, the wisest, most insightful things I've ever heard. Um, which is, he said, whenever you answer a question, you start at the cross. Whenever you answer a question, you start at the cross. And I it was I found it odd to start with. People were asking you questions said, well, at the cross, I see God is uh, at the cross. I know God to be at the cross. God shows me. I thought, why do you keep doing that? And eventually he explained it. He said, because at the cross, God is revealed more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible. So when I start with the cross, I start with what I can absolutely unquestionably, undoubtedly say is true about God. And then I work from that to whatever else. So that I'm always working for, from what is absolutely true to, to try to, to think about, well, what, is, what does the Bible mean? What does God say about these issues here? See, here at the cross, we will see God more clearly than anywhere else in all of history and in all of Scripture. Uh, at the start of his gospel, John writes this in John 1:18. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, he's saying Jesus reveals God's glory to us. God's glory is, uh, is if you like, God's character experienced. Uh, God's glory relates to God the way the, the rays of sunshine relate to the sun. They are the sun experienced in its wonder. And Jesus is God experienced by us because he comes and reveals God to us. And then we read in John twelve twenty three to 24, these words, halfway through the gospel. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In other words, he says, Now, at this point in the gospel, as he heads to Jerusalem to die on a cross, he says, now is the time when more than any other time, God will be fully glorified. It is at the cross, if you like, that the clouds of human confusion part and the sunshine of God's brilliant character shines down undiluted, unbroken upon us. And so as I um, hinted last night, as we come to the cross this weekend, we're not just here to work out the mechanics of salvation. And I do think that's a real danger for us as, as Bible evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, that our emphasis at the cross is, uh, is about the mechanics of salvation, that we know its uh, heart is penal substitution, and, and we're really clear on the mechanics of atonement. The big thing we get at the cross, the greatest thing that I want us to see this weekend is the character of God. And to be honest, if you're if you're not overly certain about the mechanics, but you are clear on the character, you'll get into much less trouble than if you are really clear on the mechanics, but you don't have a firm grasp on God's character. In a healthy world, the one leads to the other. Uh, but my aim is that you will uh, we will we'll get a deeper grasp for who God is. And so, with each talk, we're gonna we're gonna land on a characteristic of God. We're gonna land on a characteristic of God, uh, His love his justice his holiness and his providential goodness okay uh, let's get to the first talk you've got an outline there um, and we're gonna we're just really gonna think at the moment about why the need for the cross why is it that uh, as jesus says in luke twenty four forty four, the whole old testament said that the messiah had to suffer and die i need two more books Don't worry, this isn't some strange visual illustration I'm building. It's got nothing that clever. Just I couldn't see on the reflections. Okay. I remember a few years ago, I went to um, visit a guy who was uh, at church with me over um, on um, a hospital just south of the river in London. A lovely room overlooking the river, but he was a very, very sick man. And when I went in to see him, he was being hooked up to some horrific medication. And the bag that it came from, uh, unless my memory is playing tricks, it had one of those hazmat symbols on with a skull and crossbones. You think... Okay, and the, what the medication did, it made his hair fall out, it made him vomit uncontrollably, and it made him sterile so he wouldn't be able to have children. Yet yeah, you don't take medication like that for the common cold. Or even man flu. <laughs> you, you only take a medication like that when you're gonna die. When you have something so horrific that even that is better than not being treated. Uh, he had cancer. That's why he was taking those chemotherapy drugs, which rather begs the question, what on earth could be so cancerously awful that the solution, the medication, the treatment is the cross? And the answer the Bible gives is sin and the wrath of God that sin deserves. The cross deals with God's wrath against our sin. That is what is so awful that only the cross could deal with it. It is my sin and the wrath of God that it deserves. Now, you see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, To put it blasphemously, why is Jesus such a colossal wimp? I was reading a couple of weeks ago about, um, awful, I mean, horrific, a Christian uh, missionary aid worker called Kayla Mue- uh, Mueller, a 26 year old American working in Turkey on the border with Syria, um, helping Syrian refugees, got kidnapped, um, sold to Islamic State, and she was, uh, she endured weeks and weeks of gang rape, having her, her fingernails pulled out with pliers, uh, repeated beatings, to try to, and they just wanted to see if they could get her to deny Christ. And a couple of the other um, uh, hostages were a couple of Yazidi girls who managed to escape, and they reported how she remained calm and courageous and compassionate and forgiving. And she never gave up her her hope in Christ in spite of all of it, even to the day she died. So why is Jesus so much less brave than that girl? Why is Jesus so terrified of death? And listen to to Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 33. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep further going a little further. He fell to the ground and prayed if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible, for you take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will. What on earth means that Jesus is so much less calm and assured in the face of his death than countless Christian martyrs have been in the face of their deaths. Mark doesn't tell us what's in this cup that seems to bring such terror and fear for Jesus. But it's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. It's a key theme. Jeremiah 25 talks about the cup. Verses 15 to 16. Ezekiel 23, 32 to 34 talks about the cup. Habakkuk two 16. Uh, We'll drop in a couple of references. So Psalm 75 and verse 8. What is this cup that has the bravest man who ever walked this earth utterly terrified and begging God to take it away? Psalm 75 verse 8 in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices he pours it out on the wicked of the earth to drink down to its dregs the cup is something that God gives to the wicked and then Isaiah fifty-one, seventeen: awake awake rise up Jerusalem you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. The cup is a metaphor for God's wrathful judgment against human wickedness. That is what Jesus so fears. It's not the fact that he's going to die. It is that he's going to drink the cup of God's wrathful judgment against human wickedness. Now, it is hard for us to get our heads around God's wrath, partly because our culture only ever talks about God's love. I mean, most people these days say there is no no such being as God. God doesn't exist. And God is definitely all about the love. I mean, there's, you know, some logical issues there. But uh, if there's one thing we know as a culture about God, it's that he, she or it, whatever it is, is all about the love. And so it's culturally jarring to talk of God's wrath. But more than that, we also almost never experience healthy wrath. I mean, personally, I get more angry when I get cut up on the road by another car than when I see a news report of uh, a children's hospital in Syria get bombed. That's the truth. One angers me more than the other. But God's wrath is not like our wrath. God's wrath is his settled, personal, perfectly just response to human wickedness. It's settled, not wild. It's personal. It's not just a, a sort of automatic response. It is his personal view. And it's perfectly just. There's nothing out of proportion. There's nothing wrong about it. And it's against human wickedness. And it's good. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders at child abuse and rape. Because he's good and because he loves people, he cares about what's done to them. And it is that wrath that Jesus is going to absorb on the cross. When the skies turn dark above Jesus and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing the full undiluted wrath of God for sinners, as if there's a giant cosmic funnel like a great waterfall with all the wrath of God against all the accumulated sins of his people channeled down this vast river narrower and narrower and narrower into one huge thunderous channel of wrath and it is all poured on the head of Jesus Christ at the cross every last drop is drunk by him and if the anticipation of experiencing God's wrath for sin on, on the cross was so awful that he swept blood and could almost not go through with it in the garden, if the anticipation was that bad, can we even begin to imagine what the actual experience must have been? But why does it have to be so? Why is, Why does that have to be the way that God deals with us? Why can't God just forgive us? And what makes sin such a big deal? And second thing I want us to look at is that sin deserves God's wrath. We're not really going to land on one passage today in this talk. We're going to jump around. We're doing a doctrinal thematic talk, looking at, at how the Bible shows us the seriousness of sin. And there are three reasons I think the Bible shows us that sin deserves the white-hot, blistering wrath of God. It's who sin is against who we offend when we sin is the first thing secondly what it is we do when we sin the actual nature of sin and thirdly the consequences of sin so firstly uh, who it is we offend god is glorious now there have been a uh, 105 archbishops of canterbury uh, some good some not so good uh, possibly the best one of the very best, uh, came early on in the 11th century, a guy called Anselm, Archbishop Anselm. And he's uh, mostly famous and justly famous for his uh, bestseller of 1093, Cur Deus Homo. Um, I'm sure you've seen the film. The, uh, it's, uh, the English translation of the title is, Why Did God Become a Man? Why Did God Become a Man? And he doesn't get everything right as he, uh, as he seeks to explain why is it that God had to become a man to die on a cross to sort out humanity. But what he sees brilliantly is that the seriousness of sin is partly down to who sin is against. In other words, you can tell how serious an offense is by who you offend against. And when we sin, we don't offend against a human being, but against the creator God, our judge, the Holy One and you and i i think we tend to think if we were ranking sins that the worst sins are those with most consequences for humans so murder would be at the top of our list we tend to think that kind of ignoring god or two consenting adults sleeping together where there's no obvious harm to anybody else it's just not that serious but the seriousness of the offense is determined by who it is against So if I get angry, um, lose my temper and smack my dog on the nose because he's um, stolen yet more cake that I wanted to eat, it is unkind, it's brutal, it's not good treatment at all. If I get angry and lose my temper and shout at or, God forbid, hit my wife, that is a thousand times, ten thousand times worse because she's not just a creature. She is a human being made in the image of God. And she's not just any human being. She is the human being who God has called me and I've covenanted to look after and love more than any other. And when we sin, we offend against God. And the gap between the truth is the gap between us and God is far greater than the gap between an animal and a human. He is unimaginably greater and more worthy of praise than any of us, than all of us put together. And when we offend him... It is no trifling matter. We offend the one in whose image we're made and who above all else we were created to love and worship and adore and obey. But it's not just that he's great and mighty as if it's it's, uh, the difference between offending against a peasant and offending against a king. It's not just that. He is also good and holy and true. And he's more than just good and holy and true. He is the very source of holiness and goodness and truth and beauty, and justice, and love, and relationship, and faithfulness, all those things come from him, so when I sin, I put myself against that, I side with lie, hate, death, wickedness, I am, when I sin, I stand on the other side, and I make myself an enemy of truth, of love, of beauty, of faithfulness, of kindness, of justice, of honor, of respect, of decency, of every good value there is. Every time I sin, whatever the sin is, I put myself against those things. I set myself in opposition to them. And that's why David says what he says in Psalm 51. He's committed murder and adultery. and He doesn't underplay the seriousness of those at all. But he realizes that at the heart of it, at the heart of it, against you you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your eyes that's the greatest thing that's going on who we offend god is glorious secondly how we offend sin is seriousness now we use a language that i think is uh, whether consciously or subconsciously always designed to to downplay the seriousness of my sin so i say i slipped up again I let myself down. I haven't, I haven't quite uh, lived out the standards that I set for myself. I've not been as good as I should have been. But at its heart, sin is more serious than that. At its heart, sin is godless self-centeredness. It is turning away from the God of the universe and placing myself at the heart of things. Uh, there are six main words the Bible uses uh, for sin. There's failure, which is missing a target or a goal, trespassing, crossing a boundary illegally, uh, perversion, an inner twisting of a desire, uh, wickedness, which is the, the vicious, um, uh, depraved behavior. There's rebellion, breaking a law, and there's idolatry, worshipping one other than the true God. But I don't think those are the words that really convey to us the seriousness of sin so much as three pictures the Bible gives us. Rebellion against a generous king, theft from the one who deserves all glory, and adultery from a loving husband. Firstly, sin is rebellion against a loving and generous king. Adam and Eve were put in a world that wasn't just good, but very good. The garden they were put in beats anything you have ever seen on a holiday brochure. It was paradise. And he gave them all of that, but it wasn't enough. They refused to believe the one law he'd given them, that one tree in the garden was a tree they shouldn't eat from. And they decided that can't be a good law. So we will side with Satan and we will rebel against the one who's made all of this and given us all of this. As if the only way to get good stuff is to break his laws. I mean, it's just the most mind bendingly stupid thing. And we do the same. They awarded themselves the authority that I have the authority to decide what's right and wrong, not God, my creator. I have the right to describe what's healthy and what's harmful, not God who made me. I have the right to decide I've had enough of God's rule and I will live my life my way. Like enlightenment man, they wanted to live by the light of their own reason. And we reaffirm their decision every day. We say it's unjust of God to to condemn humanity for what adam and eve did and then we we rubber stamp their decision every day in the way we live our lives sin is rebellion against the good good god who's given us everything secondly sin is theft from the one who deserves all glory you and i were made to glorify god designed to praise him Um, and that's actually a really really good thing it's right that god wants us to praise Him. in 2003, uh, end of 2003, England won the Rugby World Cup, and uh, it was quite a big deal for people like me who'd grown up in the great English sporting drought of the entire 20th century, um, basically, <laughs> other than 1966, which I was not around for. Wind your necks in, and uh, and the um, when the when they came back from Australia, having uh, won in Australia, um, they um, uh, the plane landed that um, was la- coming into land at 3:34 in the morning, and uh a kind of a, a thing went out on the internet saying look uh, let's 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 all just get there surprise the players and a few of us at um at college decided you know what i've uh, only got double greek lecture this morning it doesn't matter if we sleep through that so um we uh, um, we decided, right, we'll just get up and drive. And we got up at 2.30 in the morning, drove to Heathrow. Uh, by the time we got there, the roads were close to gridlock. There were 10,000 people descended on the, uh, the arrivals land at the airport. I'm sorry if you missed a flight that morning. It was in part our fault. Um, uh, the, and it was just absolute mayhem. It was literally standing room only and the players were pretty much passed along the hands (laughs) out through the departure, uh, the arrivals lounge through this just cheering, baying mob. And my hands were numb for about a day afterwards just from clapping. I couldn't speak for two days afterwards, which was a real disappointment because I wanted to gloat to our Australian principal at college. Uh, And you know what? We we gave everything we had in praise of, of these guys. And it was just brilliant fun to do so. It wasn't, oh, we have to glorify them. How selfish of them to demand our glory. It was just a delight. They'd done something that was vaguely worthy of praise, and it was so good to praise them. God is far more worthy of praise than any rugby player will ever be. It is a delight and a joy, and the greatest treasure of heaven will not be skiing or surfing or not commuting on the northern line. The greatest pleasure of heaven will actually be praising God praising god as we were meant and yet as humans as humans we've turned away from that and robbed god of the glory he deserves romans 1 that we just had read romans 121 although they knew god they neither glorified him as god nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened although they claimed to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles verse 25 they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised we insist on jumping up on the stage and taking the praise for my life we shove god off and we demand the praise ourselves But worst of all, worse even than rebellion and theft, I think, is the adultery imagery the Bible uses. When we sin against God, we commit adultery against the most perfect loving husband. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and your strength. And in spite of all the love, the care and the kindness and the grace that he has lavished on us, the Bible says we run after other lovers and when we cheat on god we're not escaping an abusive relationship we're cheating on the one who has loved us perfectly and has forgiven us repeatedly and has welcomed us back every time we have run away ezekiel 16 has this graphic image of god and israel which applies to us he talks of israel being found naked and and beaten on a on a roadside Verse 9 of Ezekiel 16, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace round your neck. So you were adorned with gold and silver and clothes of fine linen and costly fabric. Your food was honey, olive oil and the finest of flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. I had given you and made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You went out to him and he possessed your beauty. You did not even take charge for your prostitution. When we are sinning, we are cheating against the perfect husband Not behind his back, but in full view of his face, of the one who sees all things. Sin is very, very serious because of what it is. Sin is also serious because of its consequences, thirdly, finally. Um, God made a good, perfect world. The interesting thing is, when you talk to people, almost everybody says, I'm basically a good person. Have you noticed that? I try to do the right thing, which is extraordinary. We live in a world where everybody's trying to do the right thing. And yet, it doesn't quite look like that when you turn on the evening news. You know, We've been thinking a lot about um, human trafficking of late as a church. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, 600,000 to 800,000 a year are trafficked by good people trying to do the right thing. 60% 60% of them women and children, most taken for abuse as sex slaves. I was reading a case um, up in Rotherham, uh, sorry, in Newcastle. It was a repeat, basically, of the Rotherham abuse case. Two um, teenage girls who were in care because of their family's sin, and they were neglected and vulnerable because of sins of neglectful parents. And they were taken advantage of by a local gang, um, and they were gang-raped, abused... Um, put onto hard drugs, and just repeatedly raped and raped and raped. They went to the, the police eventually, but the police were too afraid of offending this particular minority community, and so uh, nothing was done, and it was covered up. And it took years before anything was recognized or done, and the offenders escaped justice. Because of the family's sin, they were vulnerable. And neglected Because of the sins of the men who kidnapped them, they were raped and abused. And because of the sins of the police, there was an official cover-up. Sin has corrupted every aspect of life in our world. And when we sin, you and I are involved in this. When we sin, we're contributing to the corruption and suffering of our world. If you like, every sin I commit is a campaign contribution to the devil's cause of vote, death, and misery. Every sin is a campaign contribution to the devil. Is it any wonder then that sin brings God's wrath? And at the cross, Jesus became sin and took on himself the sin of not just everyone in this room, but of every human who ever drew breath who would trust in him. That is what's going on at the cross. God the Son taking on our sin and voluntarily absorbing the wrath of his Father. Okay, so how should we respond? If that is what's happening at the cross, how should we respond as we close? Firstly, hate your sin. Mourn it. Get a right attitude to it. Don't think of sin as something to be indulged or played with or something that you can just tolerate. One of the most graphic images in the Bible comes from Leviticus 18, as uh, as God talks about the nations that he's uh, booted out of Canaan. We've been looking at that in Joshua. And uh, Leviticus eighteen twenty five to 28, he says, Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And then in chapter 20, he says, Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, so the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out too the land vomited them out and in uh, psalm 95 as as god talks to his people about their ongoing sin he uses actually the same word when he says for 40 years i loathed It's, it's the same word for 40 years that generation of israelites made me want to vomit that's how i felt that's what our sin does to god and we just don't see it. Uh, the, um, I love my dog, and, dog, and he's, a, he's a lovely little dog, but they have some foul habits dogs. And uh, one of them is they love rolling in poo. And when my, if Milo finds if people have been sleeping rough in the park, you'll find a pile of human excrement and go and roll in it and think it's the most wonderful thing. And then he'll run to me and think, this is wonderful. I'd love to share it with you. Do you know what? At that point, <laughs> at that point it is disgusting. It makes me gag, and th- I just don't want to be anywhere near him and you and i do the same with god we go and play and sin and we and we come back to god and we think god surely you want to be with me and we make god gag you know what the sins that we just think are quite amusing and uh, and that we really enjoy they make god want to vomit in psalm 95 it's his own people that he loves and he says i loathe them <laughs> they made me want to vomit When we, when we sin, we cover ourselves in stuff that just is a stench in God's nostrils. So stop thinking it's okay. Stop thinking it's no big deal. Stop thinking, so long as I look okay in public, so long as I've changed enough since I became a Christian that all the big public stuff's out of the way, that it doesn't matter. Hate your sin. Get God's attitude to it. Flee it. Run away. Kill it. I said at the start, the biggest thing I think we'll see this weekend is the character of God. So what do we see about God's character when we look at sin? Well, in one sense, the obvious answer might be his holiness. But actually, I, I, I want to save that until talk three. I think the thing that we see most clearly when we reflect on our sinfulness revealed at the cross is the love of God. Which might sound bizarre and a bit counterintuitive, but think about what we deserve from God Think about how justified he would be in just condemning us forever, shutting us out from his goodness for all eternity. Think about what Jesus was willing to endure that you and I could be forgiven. Something so awful that the bravest man in history swept blood at the very thought of it. What love must God have? What love that he would go through that for people like you and me? What boundless, incomprehensible, abundant love must God have? How different from from our love. Romans 5.8 says these extraordinary words as Paul tries to get his head around what God has done for him on the cross. Romans 5.8, we're loathsome, and yet God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, verse 7 says, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is not like the love a mother has for a child, that sort of undying love a mother would give anything for a child, because by nature we're objects of wrath, not God's delighted little children. It's not like the love a husband has for his wife where he would lay down his life for her because we were not attractive to God when he set his heart upon us. It wasn't that God said, my goodness, I've just got to have them in my heavenly kingdom. They're so wonderful. It wasn't like that with you and with me when he set out to save me. And when he set out to save you, we were foul. We were covered in the excrement of sin. It's not like the love a young soldier has for his country that's willing to die for the cause. We were rebels fighting for the other side, the cause of of death and, and wickedness when Jesus came and died for us. We were resolved to destroy God's homeland, not to save it. You know, there is no illustration for the love of God because there is nothing like it. There is nothing like it, but how wonderful it is. I was... um. I was listening to Vanessa Feltz on Radio Two recently. <laughs> um, it was, it was, in my defence, the only radio station I could pick up where I was driving, uh, and it was, a, it was, a, it was a very interesting uh, program actually. Um, I'm really not helping myself, am I? Um, uh, she, uh, she was talking to people who've been told they're ugly and believe they're ugly for all their lives, and it was her and other, another therapist talking to people, phoning in, saying, "I've always been told I'm ugly." But what was interesting was the, um, was the best that they could do was. On a radio where they can't even see the person and say, no, I'm sure you're not ugly. I'm sure you're lovely. And it was, it was really well-meaning and nice, but there was something sort of slightly tragically empty about the whole thing. The wonderful thing about the Bible is that effectively the conversation, uh, goes, in a, you know, you if Vanessa Feltzer said, do you know what the Bible says? It says you are much more ugly than you realized. In fact, what you, th- what you see in the mirror may not even be the half of it. And yet God loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you because his love for you, unlike every other person, is not grounded in what you do or how you look or who you are. It's grounded in his own heart. And he seems to have this special love for unlovable, irredeemable sinners like you and me. And the great thing about a love like that is it it can't be forfeited because if God loved us when we were unspeakably ugly sinners, then If I find out that I'm even more sinful than I thought, well, God loved me when I was an unspeakable sinner. If I find out I'm even less noble and my character is uglier than I'd even dreamed, well, it's not like God chose me because he thought I was so wonderful. Another good Archbishop, William Temple, said, My worth is what I am worth to God, and that is a marvellous great deal, for Christ died for me. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for the cross of Christ, and we thank you for your love displayed there. We thank you that we see our sin, and we pray that we would uh, we would stop playing with and and making light of our sin, but we would hate it. We would see the seriousness of it as we see what happens to the Lord Jesus. We pray, too, that we would see and savor your love, As we see what you would give, not to those who deserve it, but to undeserving sinners, your compassionate, undeserved, unbounded, amazing love. Our Father, we thank you that at the cross you show yourself to be a God of undying love. And we praise you forevermore. Amen.